Edda. I'm Ryan. And this is Work Feels. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians on the lands on which we work and live, and we pay our respects to Indigenous elders past and present. Sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So we are back for episode two. Here we are, episode two, three years later. (laughs) A lot's changed, even since episode one. (laughs) Uh, We do apologise for the uh, long waiting time, but we reassure you, or we assure you that 2023 is a new year full of much opportunity and... um, and quality content. Quality content, exactly. So, Edda, what's happened between the first episode and uh, January 2023? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it was the day after we dropped the first episode. I mm-hmm. went in, had a baby. Uh, so now I have a little baby called Bryn, and Yay. he's real munchkin. And... Um, yeah, he takes up heaps of time, which is just like why... a podcast does. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so yeah, uh, it's, <clears throat> it's been interesting to um, find time to pod and baby and take care of a newborn. <laughs> Between the newborn and uh, just myself, just work working my guts out as per usual, living the overtime dream. I've done the overtime. I've had had my little Christmas break. I was flat out like a lizard on the beach. <laughs> enjoyed myself. Reset my brain in the sunshine a little bit. As you lay as a lizard on the beach, I lay and watch my boobs droop further and further down with milk. Now my boobs are so full of milk that they nearly touch my belly button. <laughs> This is the kind of information that you're going to get, listeners. We're taking you on the journey with us. Whilst we squeeze this podcast into our full-time lives. We've finally got this wonderful episode together that we are extremely excited to bring to you. A little recap from where we left off. Uh, We are bringing this podcast into 2023 and we really want to base it around uh, listener stories. We actually had a listener story reach out to us at the end of last year with her story, which you'll very shortly be able to listen to. But thank you to everyone else who wrote in, completed the survey and sent us messages, even just messages of support. It means a lot to us, even though uh, we really are only just getting started. Sometimes it takes a few of those messages just to keep up that momentum. Um, So yeah, thanks. Thanks for all the support so far. It does. Thank you, everyone. It's been very heartwarming uh, for just friends, friends, family, and um, even colleagues and some acquaintances and uh, people that have yeah said that they've loved the first episode and are super excited to listen to episode two. Our listener story is from Juju. This is a true story that took place very recently when Juju was working for a client in the hair and beauty industry. Juju takes us through the incident she experienced at work how it was handled by her supervisor and reflects on some of the bigger picture systemic challenges. Hi, my name is Juju and this is my work story. One afternoon, I submitted artwork for a flyer to be approved for print. On one side, it had some information handy to the customer and on the other side, it had a lifestyle image of an Asian model standing on a beach wearing a suit. My supervisor returned the artwork to me requesting the image be changed and our conversation goes something like this. Me. What needs changing? Them. This image of this Asian girl needs to change. It's not Australian enough. Me. What does that mean? Them. I don't want the market's first impression of our brand to be associated with cheap and nasty product made in China. Me. 
Am I allowed to use an image of the African model we used or are you going to have that same comment? Are you wanting me to use an image of the white Australian model? Them. I don't have a problem with using Asian models if it's in context. Me. What does that even mean? Them. It would be suitable to use an image with the Asian model if she's in a group of other women of other ethnicities and we're wanting to portray a diverse Australia. Me. This perception is what I am trying to change. Them. The clothing doesn't look right. The setting and lighting isn't right. It just doesn't look right. The image needs changing. My supervisor returned to her desk. As a designer of over 10 years, it is not an unusual request to change imagery. Had I been told that the image needed to be changed because the image was too serious, too dark, too high fashion, or not playful enough, I would have happily changed the image. I was left feeling really uncomfortable, confused, and upset. It wasn't until my drive home from work that I realised how upset and why. They had made a racist statement. While it was not directed at me and completely unintentional, it deeply affected me. I am a first-generation Filipino-Australian and I've had to grow up in an Australian culture not welcoming to immigrants. I myself have experienced racism at all different levels and I've heard the experiences of friends and family. It was on my drive home that I realised growing up in Australia meant that I had to lose my Fili Filipino culture to fit in. And it didn't matter how much of my culture I had rejected or the fact that I was born here or how Aussie I sounded, I simply could not fit into this image of what an Australian should look like with me looking the way that I do. Asian. I sobbed in the car all the way home with this realisation and when I got home sent my supervisor a message. Our conversation today was a very uncomfortable conversation for me and made me quite upset. We need to have a face-to-face -face chat about this, but I need you to think about why. What you think people's first perception of seeing this image is the exact thing I'm working to change. I was told to look like me is not Australian enough. Today I did not feel accepted as an Australian. My supervisor replied with, I'm sorry you feel that way, but I don't want people to think our products are made in China. It really is as simple as that. It doesn't mean she is not represented as Australian, but the market's perception is important. Happy to talk about it tomorrow. I'm really glad you said something though. I never want you to feel like you don't belong. This response showed me that they didn't understand and I was so upset I had to write all my thoughts and feelings down to bring up with them the next morning. The next morning I arrived at work and my supervisor and I went straight into the boardroom to have our conversation. I was way too emotional to talk so I had my supervisor read what I had written the previous night. There's banter, there's our deeper conversations and then there's yesterday's conversation. This isn't a simple issue. There are fundamental values here that are potentially misaligned with mine, making me question whether this is the right place for me. Asian model does not equal made in China. If I use an image of an African model, will people think our products are made in Africa? Are you worried that when your Asian sales rep is cold calling, people are going to think the products they're selling are cheap and made in China? How do you know that that's the market's perception? You've made a judgement on what consumers would think based on your own biases. Regardless, a statement like this isn't justified by that's what the market's perception is. So is the priority then given to what the market's perception is for the sake of profit over a social issue like racism? So I'm only allowed to use an image of an Asian woman in context. For example, when we're talking about a diverse Australia and she is in a group with other women. When she's alone, no. This issue around racism in Australia is not an issue I'm taking lightly. It has cost me the knowledge of my own culture. After reading this, 
My supervisor apologised for hurting me, but not for what they had said, and then asked for my permission to share this experience with the rest of the team. I agreed, because I know that this is a really important lesson for the team to learn, especially since I was the only person of colour working there. Everyone who was present that day was called into the boardroom for a meeting. I was still too emotional to speak, so my supervisor led the meeting, beginning with telling everyone what had happened and sharing what I had written. My supervisor wanted to talk about what culture meant to the team, and this involved a whiteboard with a table drawn on it, listing various cultures, each with its own column. Culture by culture, the team was asked to call out words that they associated with the culture. The words that were written on the board were words like proud, arrogant, friendly, and harsh. We ended up with cultural descriptions like Germans are harsh, Americans are patriotic, and Australians are laid back. As a collective on this whiteboard, the team had built the stereotype for each culture. I thought at the end of this, my supervisor would say to the team, we've just done a racist exercise. That did not happen. I was then asked how this conversation went and still too emotional, I could only respond with good. I did not feel like it went good, but I didn't know how else to respond. I was the reason for this big meeting where my all-white team had to listen to and participate in a conversation on culture and race. I couldn't bring myself to tell everyone the whole thing had been a waste of time. The meeting ended and the rest of the day progressed like any other day. It wasn't until a week later that I was really hit with emotion. The thought of going to work and sitting across from my supervisor knowing how they felt and still needing to act like everything was normal for me made me physically ill. I had never felt anxiety like this before. It was a Monday morning and I messaged work saying well, I was not going to make it in. I booked an appointment to see a doctor that day because I was really needing some mental health support. I was an absolute wreck. This doctor was able to refer me to a psychologist and I was able to start sessions later that week. I also submitted a claim to work cover to get some compensation since the reason I was needing mental health support was from what had happened at work. I ended up resigning a couple days later. I did say my reason for resigning was to spend some time with my daughter and to reconnect with my roots. This wasn't a complete lie. But my supervisor didn't feel like they had done anything wrong and I wasn't going to argue with them about it. They also felt I was acting like a teenager having a tantrum and that they needed to give me some time to calm down. I hoped that from seeing how hurt I was, there would be some proactive action taken so that something like that wouldn't happen again. I did not feel this was a priority to them and it needed to have some level of significance for me to feel comfortable to continue working there. I resigned for my emotional safety and mental health. A few weeks later, I learned that my work cover claim was rejected. Why? Because my supervisor denied having said anything racist. A massive thank you to Juju for sharing her story. It's a straight up example of racism in the workplace and a situation that I'm sure many people find themselves in workplaces across Australia. To unpack the themes that emerged in Juju's story, we reached out to Irfan Deliri, who's a social change consultant and CEO of Kind Enterprises and an incredible speaker and stand-up poet. Irfan has 20 years of professional experience in social change initiatives, including participatory community development, First Nations advocacy, cross-cultural communication, migration and settlement services, anti-racism training and consulting, systems thinking for social change and motivational speaking. On top of that, Irfan has a Master's in Communication for Social Change from the University of Queensland and is also the Director of Newkind Social Justice Conference, which recently took place in Melbourne and attracted rave reviews. 
Get ready to sink your teeth into this interview that was really quite profound for Ryan and I. We were left thinking about this interview for days, weeks afterwards. Welcome. Thank you so much, Irfan, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. To get started, can you tell us a little bit about your motivation to do the work that you do? And as some people say, what is your why or your purpose? Sure, absolutely. Um, my motivation, um, I guess, this is an evolving thing. It's not a, a static thing. Um, as, as a baseline, I have a just inherent low tolerance for what I would call unfairness or you know, injustice uh, as a grown-up word. But even as a child, I, I just didn't have the capacity to deal with someone being treated uh, in a way that I didn't think was fair. So the only two fights, quote-unquote, that I got into in primary and high school were where other people were being teased or bullied that, um, that, and I felt I had something I could do to, to help the situation. So I just can't stand to see um, anyone being treated unjustly. And that, over the course of my life, has evolved into a, a really um, fierce dedication to wanting to create the world that I think we all deserve living in. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think that the state of the world right now is a natural state. I think it's an unnatural state. I think that um, we haven't even scratched the surface of what human beings are capable of um, and what we could achieve if we were to actually work together. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, that kind of does break my heart. Um, imagining what the world could look like and seeing where we are right now and that gap that I recognize between the two really drives my motivation to try and close that gap between the current reality and the perceived potential that I see in my mind's eye. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for the work that you do. It is inspiring. Thank you. My pleasure. And when it comes to, I guess, the world that we could, could be, if you relate that to workplaces um, in Australia right now, um, what are some of the main challenges you're seeing in workplaces and why, what's the most common reason people reach out to you? Uh, obviously, the, the you know, prejudice along the lines of, of race and sex. So basically sexism mm -hmm. and racism. Um, and there are a whole uh, bunch of other layers of uh, inequity that are embedded within workplaces that don't allow individuals to contribute to their fullest extent and to be their fullest selves. Uh, and that can have varying levels of degrees of impacts on, on people's lives, whether it's uh, not being able to be their full selves or simply being a psychologically unsafe workplace. It depends on um, the workplace from one to another. It depends on the challenge as well, whether it's race, sex, ability, neurodiversity, sexuality. Um, we haven't quite yet resolved those basic level prejudices as much as we'd like to think we have. They still exist. Mm -hmm. Some of the overt prejudice, like segregation and women not being allowed to enter the workforce or study certain things we've resolved but we haven't really got to the root cause of underlying prejudices that exist that mm -hmm. you know even gender roles like the perceived gender constructs of men are inherently better than this and women are inherently better than that that's a prejudice that's not an actual reality um, it's something that mm. we've carried forward from one generation to another which is now still used as a justification to say well We've got more male engineers in our company because men are better at engineering. It's an absolute uh, falsity. So those kinds of hangovers of prejudices of, of ages ago are still persisting in the current workforce. Um, and organizations, companies, countries, and communities can't reach their full potential or function even properly if they can't resolve those basic level biases, prejudices, um, and micro and macro discriminations yeah mm -hmm. um so in terms of we've just heard juju's work story which is a really clear example of racism in the workplace and mm -hmm. to kind of go to the root of that mm -hmm. can we start with breaking down what the root of racism is and does it share like is it is this is the root similar for other forms of discrimination as you say um, gender and sexuality neurodiversity yes and no um mm -hmm. they do share some similarities in the way in which some things can function so sexism and racism um are both um 
built on a foundation of power and the exercise of power, the control of power. Mm-hmm. And prejudice is what justifies or drives it. Um, so the concentration of power within the hands of a specific sex is an age-old thing that we are still trying to resolve. And that is the same thing with race. And that power mm-hmm. isn't what we always think of when we think of power. We think of the, you know, the, the leaders of society and CEOs. There are myriad forms of power. Um, and it can be as simple as influence or it can be as simple as social capital or it can be as simple mm-hmm. as having your ideas respected slightly more than someone else. That's a uh-huh. form of power as well. So power differentials is what's at the bottom of um, sexism and racism. And then there are other layers of identity and, um, and the person's lived experience that also create additional discrimination, i.e. ability, right? And a workplace that may or may not be fit to serve the needs of people with differing abilities. That's not necessarily a power play, but because of differing amounts of power in people's hands to determine how the workplace is designed or how the building mm. is built, then they don't, they're not even aware of how their influence, quote-unquote, power is causing discrimination for someone else inadvertently. Yes. And I think that that power, too, is just directly linked to control. Yes. So that certain groups of people have control over other groups of people, which I think is just like yeah. since almost since like the dawn of time, as far back in history as you go, you can see that, um, yeah, certain people have the power and therefore they hold the control. Totally. Yeah. And sometimes it's power and control over other people overtly. Mm. And sometimes it's power and control over decision-making processes that then impact the lives of other people. Um, yeah. Like s- systematic stuff. Yeah. yeah. So on one hand it's, you know, on one extreme it's, it's slavery, stolen generation colonization on the other hand it's the the power to design policy or to design a building um or to design you know um a role a job description you know who determines what you're looking for to Mm. fill a decision that's still power over because it determines who gets the job yeah yeah and it's so hard to essentially break that cycle in a way because you need representation in these positions of power and when it just continues in cycle cycle after cycle where you know there's certain people that aren't let in they aren't aren't let into these positions they aren't even like physically let into buildings you know in terms of Mm. accessibility yeah yeah absolutely yeah in in terms of the power structures, so through through putting together um, this episode, Edda and I, I guess the, some of the key terms that we keep coming over um, would be white power structures, capitalism, mm. and a white lens. Can mm-hmm. you help the us and the audience kind of break these down and how they're interconnected? Sure, sure. I mean, um, I think the two that you mentioned first, white power structures and capitalism, are uh, closely related the white lens we can potentially unpack um in a in a follow-up question um those two definitely power white power structures and capitalism are hand in hand and, and in fact to a degree the same thing um so the current disparities that we see uh in access representation um economic power and political power whether it's on a national level or a global level are all outcomes of 500-year-old ideas of cultural superiority uh, of the European race. So the idea of race was created five, six, uh, 400 years ago, and Europeans then justified their exercise of power over other people um, because they had guns and cannons and ships, and they could. So they justified that with race, and through that then they colonized um, almost the entirety of the planet Um, They enslaved West African people. They stole children from their parents here in Australia. And that access to the planet and its resources and the lands and the exercise of power over other people is what's now created the quote-unquote power structures of modern society. So if you want to try and have a conversation at COP27 or COP28 or COP48, you can't Mm -hmm. have a, a proper consultative process if not everyone in the room is given the same amount of influence into the conversation. Mm -hmm. So do we need to dismantle capitalism to achieve social justice or is it possible to 
keep capitalism and achieve social justice? Um, <laughs> uh, good question. <laughs> just, just lock questions. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, uh, we have too many questions, and I'm already squeezing more it. in. I love I'm it. sorry. <laughs> no, I, I love that question because to me the answer is very short. But it's, I, I laugh because it's, it's, it's such a, it's such an argument, it's such a point that people want to try and debate one way or another. But to me, it's, it, the short and fast answer is um, capitalism is the cause of social injustice in the planet. You can't use the cause okay. of social injustice on the planet to then resolve issues to of social it. justice. Yeah, it's it's the literal foundation okay. of all of it. Yeah. Great. So we have it clear, plain and simple. We must dismantle capitalism. Like this is like this is really clear. Okay, so what I would where I would disagree is in the uh, approach to resolving the situation. Okay. So the word dismantle uh, immediately triggers like the majority of the Western world. Um, and even the process of dismantling something is arduous. Yes. Like if I've, mm. if I've got something that's not working, I don't necessarily even need to worry about that thing because it's that bad. We actually need solutions more than we need dismantling of something else. So okay. that's what really right. excites me at the, about the process of social change is that, yes, to a degree, we need to acknowledge that capitalism is a problem, but we need to exert as much energy on well what are the other forms of governance and economic systems hand in hand that we can use to find our way out of this hole we've dug ourselves in with capitalism um, right. which as you know we had some of those conversations at new kinds like circular economy and ecological economics and yes. other forms of governance and consultation so yes so yeah i would avoid i would avoid the word dismantle capitalism okay and i would probably focus more on what would a post-capitalist or post-growth world look like? And how could we you know, um, establish a system of trade and business and commerce that doesn't continue to concentrate wealth, thereby concentrating power? Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Okay, so to bring the conversation back into, into the workplace and, and mm. referencing the white lens, which, which she said is, mm-hmm. is separate from white power structures in capitalism and the white lens came up many times at at the new kind conference and it's a word that actually i googled white lens today and Mm -hmm. um i got uh results of white contact lenses and also um (laughs) canon does a white lens (laughs) oh yeah so i i couldn't really not find um anything that came off the back of a simple google search around the white yeah. lens but it's something that you know it's something we're starting to recognize and starting mm-hmm. to feel yeah. can you help us break down like what is this white lens and yes. and how does it manifest in the workplace right absolutely so the reason why we don't see much of it out there is largely due because of the previous question white power structures and capitalism <laughs> <laughs> so, so so we need to send a letter to google and uh, right. get that rectified so we're talking google we're talking publishing companies we're talking academia we're talking white me- western media we're talking western politics there's a whole system that controls what uh, is published what is not published what is platformed, what is not platformed, what is agreed with, what is not agreed with, which is why some yeah. things take so much more effort. So the white lens is, it's a strange thing that we even need to talk about this. This is why it's so absurd to people like myself and uh, and others who have had to partially assimilate into a, a, a Western settler colonial society as a non-white person is because we are fully aware that each one of us looks at the world and lives in the world through a particular lens. Our cultural Mm -hmm. lens which is influenced by our ethnicity our religion our family upbringing and we kind of all understand that we think differently from other people and that's influenced by our culture but because of what we call the um supposed normativity of whiteness or white normativity as if whiteness Mm -hmm. is the objective neutral natural you know unbiased perspective we have somehow the world has somehow convinced itself that white people don't have a, a cultural perspective. It's mm. like, no, 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 that's uh-huh. just my perspective. You're the one with the cultural perspective, thereby reasserting white power by saying, I don't have an alternative perspective. I've got the mainstream position here mm. and you are the one with the cultural perspective. So that's part of unpacking what the white lens is talking about. 
The other thing is because of the concentration of wealth, power, and the control of much of the planet's media, everything is looked at through that white lens. Mm. So mm-hmm. um, whether it's the imagery of black men and the supposed violence of black men or the, the sexualization of, of black women, for example, or whether it's the solutions to how to solve the aged care sector crises or how to fix mm-hmm. the, culture, uh, the climate change crises, this is all done through the white lens because we mm-hmm. have assumed that this is neutral and objective and forgotten that actually it's a cultural lens. Uh, and mm-hmm. we need to recognize that so that we can finally have consultations where everyone's perspective is given equal weight, so to speak, and evolve all of our cultures to a point where we have a unified global vision of the planet and a unified uh, cultural perspective, so to speak, of how we can solve our problems. Until we address power structures, we can't have fair conversations and consultations. Mm, and I guess it's so white, like the, the white lens, like perspective is it's become so widespread through every single kind of power structure and every media source. And it, it almost yes. becomes, unfo- well, to white people, it almost becomes invisible because it's, it's just becomes the default. It's, it's everything exactly. that you see. It's everything that you hear. Absolutely. And that's the thing. And that's how a worldview works, right? Your worldview is like a set of contact lenses. It's so close to your face, to your brain and your eyes. You don't see your worldview. Yeah. The only point in time, the only time you can actually see your worldview is if you are in a position where you are forced to navigate another worldview that is dominant over your worldview and you have to assimilate into that worldview. Mm -hmm. And as Western white settler colonial people, you've never had to navigate someone else's worldview Mm -hmm. in a meaningful way. At most, you've spent six months in another country. Mm-hmm. And even then, because of global white power, you've been treated with respect and deference. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? Whereas as a migrant to Australia, even as a, at the age of one, whether you've been here one year or 40 years, we understand our cultural perspective and we understand the dominant power structure's cultural perspective and we code switch every day of our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And just for anyone who doesn't understand code switching, can you just give us a quick definition of what does code switching mean yeah it just means switching from one cultural perspective instead of behaviors and language and vernacular to another mm-hmm. um so to a degree um many people do this um you might code switch between how you speak with your friends to how you you know behave at, at the home some people might not but some people certainly do so code switching is putting on uh, a certain cultural clothing Mm -hmm. to fit into a certain space yeah and then taking that off and putting on another set of cultural clothing because that's what you're more comfortable with yeah Mm. which would be happening at workplaces around the world every every day day of the week yes yes yeah and it often becomes very exhausting the only thing i could speak to on that is code switching with your sexuality to have to go into an environment where i was like oh Better not uh, yep. let anyone know that I'm gay because I could be in danger. I could lose my job, you know. Exactly. It's um, yeah. Exactly. There are risks to it, right? Yeah. There are repercussions to it. Exactly. So there's many layers of code switching. And then some people don't have the benefit of pretending like they're not black. Mm, of course. Or brown of course. or Asian. Mm. So it's like, and some people are managing multiple layers of code switching. So even as a black or brown person, they may also be a woman of color, they may also be a queer woman of color mm-hmm. with a disability. So there'll be some codes that can switch, some codes they can't switch. I guess the the um, I guess leading on from the the white lens um, topic, mm-hmm. I guess that is quite closely linked to unconscious bias. So when you're providing training for workplaces to start to be able to see this bias. Um, what are some of the tactics um, that you use or, or how, do you, how do you frame that when you try and, um, I guess, make people see that contact lens that is so close to their eye, you know, that they can't see it? Yeah. So with unconscious bias, it's, be, it's, it's a bit different to how a worldview works. So a worldview is the basic set of rules and codes and behaviors that you function on with and you assume that these are my normal behaviors unconscious bias in order to understand that usually what i would start with is some basic you know brain neurology science 
um, stuff to explain how unconscious bias actually forms, which is um, similar to a degree to how culture forms. And it's basically the one of the things that sets human beings apart from the rest of the uh, animal kingdom is that we are really, really, really good at pattern recognition, which is what has allowed us to build agriculture and civilization and arts and you know navigate through the stars and work out the seasons. We understand, recognize patterns, and we then make assumptions on them, and we and we do better. But that ability to recognize a pattern and um, make assumptions from it is something that's now leading to our downfall because the patterns we are now seeing are not naturally forming patterns from our natural environment. They are the patterns that are given to us through the white controlled Western media mm. that educates most of the planet. Mm. So every advertisement you've seen, every book you've read, every film you've watched, um, every piece of media content you've consumed, whether it's a children's book, a comic book or a, or a textbook, repeats to us certain narratives Certain characters are played by certain types of people, and certain types of people are constantly portrayed in certain types of ways. Now, our brain can't tell the difference between what you're watching in a movie and what is actual reality. Uh-huh. So the people who are creating these images are responsible for forming unconscious bias in our, in our brains. And as you know, in brain science, synapses that fire together, wire together. So any thought, behavior, or pattern that's repeated becomes hardwired into our brain. Uh-huh. So if I constantly see images of black men and they are being portrayed as apparently being violent over and over and over again in every single film that I see, then that becomes hardwired into my brain. So you can imagine how many prejudices people are carrying around unconsciously in their brains just because of the content they've seen. And it's got nothing to do with how our hearts work. It's more to do with how our brains work. And that's why unconscious bias can often go exactly opposite or contrary to what we actually believe in our hearts. Mm. And that's what makes it much more challenging to resolve. So we can't train people in a couple of hours or six or ten hours even how to not have unconscious bias. It's simply impossible because that's taken several decades to build up. What we can do, and we don't have time and scope for in this call, is to lay out strategies of how to mitigate unconscious bias and its influence by design. Uh So you design processes in the workplace that mitigate the impacts of bias by design rather than relying on an individual to literally rewire their brain in two hours, which is not, <laughs> yeah. not possible. And so it also makes me think about auditing the, um, the material yes. that I'm taking in every day, auditing the authors of my books, the, the directors of my movies, the people that I follow on social media yes. to almost break that sort of white cycle of just eating up white mm-hmm. media and white narrators, not yes. white authors, etc. And then totally. maybe over the next yes. decade or two to almost try and, yeah, mm-hmm. un- undo all yeah. of that um, white lensing or, or unconscious bias, totally. I should say. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, exactly. And while we've got neuroplasticity and, and our brains are still agile, we should do it as quick as we can. And I think to help the uh, to listeners to work out where to start, there's two documentaries that I would recommend. One is uh, Black Hollywood, okay. They've Got to Have Us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a UK documentary, uh, Black Hollywood. Um, and the other one that I'm actually halfway through watching, it's, I've only just recently come across it, is uh, Is That Black Enough For You? Which is a... History of, of, of black film and media, and how black people have been portrayed in film, and how black people have created film, um, and this um, dance between the two, and how the image of blackness has been influenced so much by the Western world and Western media makers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, we'll make sure we put those links in the show notes as well. Great. And would you yeah. say that um, I, it just popped into my mind i guess which i've definitely pulled myself up on a little bit is realizing that you're um, particularly with technology that you can kind of find yourself in an echo chamber with just Mm -hmm. people that talk like you look like you um do the same things as you and you know you can still have you know some good conversations and i guess progressive conversations but it, it is limited when you are just surrounded yeah. by pretty much the exact same people whether it's digital or um, physical but more so that it's it's digital these days yeah absolutely yeah so that digital space has accelerated that process mm. of confirmation bias we used to have a circle of friends that we talked to and they would confirm our biases 
and we would generally think the same way, which is why we were friends in the first place, which creates confirmation bias. But now the digital, digital world has put that on steroids. You know, mm. everything you click on on Facebook or YouTube or Spotify, the algorithms are so strong that you keep getting the same things that you clicked on, and you keep missing the things you once scrolled past. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. And you're literally playing it. surrounded by thousands of people, if not tens of thousands of people across your networks that end up, yep. yeah, if, you, if you're not conscious of that, it ends up being, yeah, this enormous Absolutely. echo chamber that you're almost unconscious to. Yeah. And, it's, and it's not always so like, overtly racist and prejudiced. It's sometimes really, really subtle. If we're constantly surrounded by people who look like us, think like us, whose parents' cultural background and ethnicity is exactly like us, we sometimes say really silly things like sentences like, uh, we, we've got a lot to learn from our indigenous people. Just mm. that sentence alone is something that some people will, will pick up on and some people won't pick up on. Mm-hmm. The word our is really grating. It's like mm. ownership. Yes. Yeah. It comes from a place of superiority. They're not your First Nations people. They are sovereign peoples, Right. But yes. some older Australians particularly continue to say our First Nations as if it's, they're a piece of property to own. Mm-hmm. Whereas you'd never say anything like that about a European person. Yeah. Oh. So these are the kinds of things. There was another incident recently about when we had the shortage of truck drivers in, in Australia, um, one of our you know, allies, quote unquote, in the feminist space tweeted to their tens of thousands of followers, we should let the refugees out of the tensions so they can fill the truck driver shortage and that person didn't think there was anything wrong with that i'm mm. like these people are doctors lawyers engineers and journalists yeah and you just said we should let them out so they can drive out trucks and there's nothing wrong with being a truck driver but the the implication that that that, that our engineers and yeah. doctors because of the color of their skin should drive trucks mm. for us and paint. that's what happens when we've got echo chambers yeah and using like broad brush strokes to just stereotype an entire like monolith of of people that are you yeah know, that, that she's never met yeah 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 <laughs> all right so um <laughs> one thing that came up i'm going to reference the conference again because this conference was phenomenal yes. so i was blown away by which conference was that Oh, sorry, New Kind <laughs> Conference. Kind. Everyone, get your tickets for 2023. <laughs> um, so, what, I mean, every panel was incredible, but one panel was, um, Thank you. you know, really captivated me, which was the work and employment panel. And you mentioned something on the panel, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which really got me thinking, yes. which um, essentially, like when it comes to the push for diversity and inclusion in the workplace, the narrative and motivation yes. is always about how diverse teams perform better. But when you break that mm-hmm. down, diverse teams mm-hmm. who perform better, companies that will then make more money, which usually makes white people more rich and preserves white power structures mm-hmm. in the workplace. And this whole system is self-serving. And, you know, yes. it's, it's essentially about money. And to take it one step further, like I, like I highly doubt that there would be this drive for diversity if teams weren't as profitable slash productive because of it. What are your thoughts on Mm this? Yeah, great question. Big question. I like Mm. it. Um, It speaks (laughs) to a lot of things. And I could go go any which way of 10 directions from this point because there's so much to unpack there. And, and you are right. It's, it's unfortunate. And I think what I was saying on the panel was that it's actually heartbreaking that even uh, at this stage of the game, 500 years of racism, we still have to sell it to people yeah. as if we bring value to your company, so please hire us. Like, mm. I'm, I'm so sick and tired of that condescension and patronizing approach to why we need diversity. So there's that element of it. And then there's the aspect which you just touched on, which is, you know, if we're constantly selling them, uh, selling diversity and inclusion through the lens of increased product profits and productivity and engagement, then yes, it does create uh, an economic benefit to the business it increases engagement it improves uh, attraction recruitment and retention um, Mm -hmm. and a whole range of other things which makes the organization more efficient but also the mere presence of diversity also can begin shifting the culture of organizations right and make organizations more intelligent 
and potentially because each person comes with their own specific cultural lens mm. not everyone thinks the same way capitalism doesn't come as naturally to certain uh, cultural worldviews certainly not to first nations people some people culturally mm. are more inclined to social enterprise mm. and collectivism right so that's another way of looking at it is like well actually um, it could shift the culture of an organization to become more um, socially conscious to become more regenerative or to become more equitable um, and to even question the very fundamentals of their business model um, if you allow different perspectives to contribute in decision making places not just hire them for your lower level interns and you know receptionists or you know uh, low level staff allow diversity to flourish up the food chain to places of senior management and decision making mm-hmm changing capital or trying to affect or adjust or dismantle whatever the word we want to use capitalism is not the only way to create change and alternatives are already popping up naturally it's like it's an ecosystem right any ecosystem Mm. that is under stress or strain will begin designing and creating new species to help adjust the pressure and to make the ecosystem more healthy so right now, the social enterprise space, the not-for-profit space, the crowdfunding space, um, the way we can start social movements through social media so quickly, these are all natural um, social phenomena that are popping up out of our ecosystem that are also able to create change. So for as long as people want to hold on to a toxic power structure like capitalism and try to affect change through it, that's fine. I'm not going to tell anybody who's working in an organization that's built on capitalist um, assumptions to not try to create change in their organization. Absolutely not. They should, and I'm more than happy to help them because at the moment, that's where much of the power lies. But at the same time, it's not, not the only place to create change. And I think the representation of diverse peoples, diverse cultures, diverse abilities and genders in all spaces of society, in the government sector, in the corporate sector, in the third sector, the NGO space, in social enterprise space, in climate consultations, in the United Nations, in all of these spaces, we need to have diversity and proper representation. And mm-hmm. if we so happen to work in an organization um, that is, quote unquote, you know, purely capitalistic, we can still create change there also. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And do you think that just made me think um, these, I guess, are purely capitalist organization do you see a way for making change as trying to get them to broaden their approach in terms of how they're doing things and 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 enter these spaces and and try these other ways um of of doing business of you know taking on some non-for-profit um or uh social enterprise or is is there ways that rather than that just existing completely separately to a fundamentally capitalist organization is there a way that these organizations can start to branch and broaden into these other you know forms of of doing business and other forms of economies i mean totally of course um we've just got to keep an eye on the fact that sometimes branching off into these spaces is used as a ploy or a, Mm. a branding exercise to help draw more business to them as well yes it can can become tokenistic yeah and it helps the business actually conduct more business um and i think it's important also to delineate for the listeners that um capitalism doesn't mean commerce or business by the way um commerce and business can absolutely absolutely necessary functions of life right everything on this planet exists within a function uh within an economic function your Mm -hmm. your body Right requires the flow of blood to transfer resources from one part of the body to the other. That's mm-hmm. what an economy is. Mm-hmm. An economy, the transfer and flow of water or blood or money facilitates life. So commerce and business is not what we're talking about. Capitalism is a bunch of other principles like the privatization of the commons, the privatization of basic human requirements like education, healthcare, water companies. Like mm-hmm. The fact that we've got CEOs questioning whether water is a basic human right. That tells you how far capitalism has gone. Trying to capitalize on literally anything that can be profited on. And then there's the other things like the concentration of wealth. Like, you know, in the last few years, we've had more people buy their fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh homes than we had have had buying their first homes. Mm. So that, 
you know, ex extension of the gap between the rich and poor is something else that's facilitated by capitalism. It doesn't mean business is bad. Business needs to happen. We need to have the flow of, of commerce and uh, energy and resources. We've just got to do it in a way that doesn't concentrate it in one part of the population. That's the only problem. Mm -hmm. Right, right. All right. So shall we switch gears and move yeah. into action tips? Okay, sure. This is all about takeaways where people can take sort of tangible ideas or insights into their workplace. Mm -hmm. um, so obviously a lot of these topics, um, as we've mentioned, are enormous topics that, you know, you could yeah. go down any <laughs> form of rabbit hole on um, in terms totally. of talking about. Um, but we did mention the term and... I'd actually never really heard of the term until Edda told me a while ago now, mm. but psychological safety. Um, mm -hmm. I think maybe a lot of people who aren't into organizational psychology or, um, mm -hmm. you know, the psychology space, can you sort of um, break down what psychological safety is um, and, and how you see that being applied in a, in a workplace context? Totally. So I'll, I'll start by saying that psychological safety allows people to be able to actually speak their mind and be their full selves and not be acting um, with the fear of repercussions and retaliation simply for being their full selves. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of workplaces, as much as they like to think racism doesn't exist here, psychological safety doesn't exist either for a lot of these places. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. an example to help highlight what we're talking about here is that we recently at Kind Enterprises did a survey of our several hundred webinar participants and asked the question, how many of you uh, recognize, or how many of you would say that raising an issue of racism in the workplace is a risk to your career? And 78% said, yes, it is a risk to my career, simply to raise an issue of racism in the workplace. Mm. That is not a psychologically safe society. Mm -hmm. That is a society that understands inherently that if racism exists in my workplace, I'm better off not saying anything about it than trying to raise that issue with HR because my career is potentially at risk simply by wanting to talk about it. And there is so much evidence to highlight this point and prove it because there are a plethora of people who have tried to create change and Juju was one of them, mm -hmm. um, Right, and she now works for us because she tried to address an, an issue of racism and the response oftentimes isn't um, as kind or compassionate or um, positive as we would like to think. Yeah. Um, so oftentimes people will go through work understanding where the invisible cliff edges are and they're like, don't step too close to that. Mm -hmm. Right, and it, and it really becomes particularly anything to do with race. I think it's it's something that people are like shit scared of to mm -hmm. to even mention the term or the word. And yeah. do you think that's really something that we've kind of just got to get over? And it actually needs to be spoken about a lot more, and it needs to be approached from a different way. Absolutely, absolutely. We we can't not use the word race exactly. when we've spent five hundred years building a society based on the lines of race mm. like we, we can't not talk about it now it's like why are you making everything about race as well because for 500 years everything was about race yeah you yeah. know we've only just started the beginnings of this conversation after the end of world war ii when europeans scientists saw the horrors of what racism and ethnic cleansing can do to europe when it began impacting Europe, UNESCO finally put out the report, the race question, in 1950. And the scientists, just like the IPCC reports, came together and they said race is a social construct. It's not real. It's not scientifically grounded. And we need to do away with it. And that's what, in fact, fueled and empowered the first um, civil rights movements across Australia and the US and all over the world, was that the scientific community of Europe finally came together. So we've only just started talking about race. But the rest yeah. of the time, we were acting along the lines of race. So that is definitely a part of being able to create psychological safety, both for those who don't want to talk about race and for those who do want to talk about race. And that's a big part of what we do at Kind Enterprises is making sure that we acknowledge the tricky feelings, quote unquote, that come up for people when we uh -huh. want to talk about race 
the defensiveness, the guilt, the shame, mm. the nerves, the anxiety. Recognize that. Let's talk about that. Let's unpack that. Why is that coming happening for you? Only then can we actually have effective conversations about race and racism where people feel uncomfortable enough to learn but safe enough to actually grow. Yes. yes. And I and I feel like people are it, it we're now at a, a point that you know, I would like to think most people know that it's a very bad thing to be yeah. racist and to do racist behaviors or or say racist things. Um, but yeah, I think we, we need to now get to a point where, okay, well, we know it's bad, but now we need to know how to start, as you say, unpacking it and, and talking about yeah. it and, and not being yeah. so scared of the conversation, because if we're scared of it and we don't say anything or do anything, then the progress yeah. kind of stops. We can't totally continue. And, and you know, what's even more powerful than the saying and the doing of racist stuff is the thinking of racist stuff. Mm. Uh-huh. That's what we don't talk about. And everyone wants to focus. Everyone wants to focus on someone said something racist or they did something racist. But it's not often that that happens in a workplace. It's the racist thinking we need to address. And that happens every day of the week. And if anyone's listening, thinking, have I possibly thought something racist in the last week? I assure you 100% you have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it's inevitable. It's, it's, like it's, it's, uh, un, it's not possible to have not had a racist thought because we are conditioned to have certain preferences biases or ideas that we've developed through the media we've consumed and, con- uh, and, and uh, the content we've consumed. So we need to talk about ra- what a racist idea is and how we can address racist thinking rather than just the saying and the doing because everyone can keep their, their behaviors in check in the workplace, most people. Yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, but it's the subtle things. We've got to talk about the subtleties of it and, and how pervasive it can be and have a nuanced understanding of race only then can we have psychologically safe workplaces yeah. uh, where microaggressions don't happen, where people don't have to swallow their pride just because they need to keep their job and not talk about race. So once we address the psychological safety issue, that's when people can actually be a part of your organization. Until that point, they're just doing the bare minimum to earn their wage and to keep the business alive. Mm-hmm. People can't contribute fully until they are safe enough to say, I have experienced... Uh, um, an incident of sexual harassment and I feel safe enough to raise that with HR. Women all over the planet will tell you they don't generally feel safe enough to mention smaller incidents of sexual innuendo, inappropriate jokes, a slight hand on the lower back when a male colleague is talking to them because raising those issues, as inappropriate as they are, does your career no good, mm. right? There are risks and repercussions for saying, hey, Timothy over here keeps putting his hand on my lower back on my shoulder when he speaks to me and I find that slightly inappropriate. That shouldn't be happening and no one should feel unsafe talking about that. But the fact of the matter is a lot of these incidents of sexism and racism don't get reported because they don't, the cost to benefit ratio is not there for the person experiencing it. So they just put up with it. Yeah. Until it's a serious incident of overt racist abuse or actual sexual harassment, physical violence, and then it gets reported. We don't. We shouldn't let it get to that point. Mm. And we have to make people feel safer about talking about it, and also the fact that people should find it more normalized to if that if you've been accused of something as well. So the other side of the coin, if you've been accused of something that you you know you also just need to own up to it or be open to discussing it and not. Um, be so like not gaslight people yeah, so reactionary and like explode when someone even mentions the term of of racism yeah. or, or or sexual harassment or anything and that you think you know I think it yeah from the being accused of it needs to um, uh, I don't know how to articulate that but people need to appro- approach that differently as well absolutely yeah absolutely right Focusing more on on the workplace, I guess this is something that we definitely thought of um, when it came to when we heard uh, Juju's story in particular. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. When you're faced with an experience of racism or any form of discrimination or harassment at work, what would you say? And again, there's I'm sure there's a million uh, answers to this, but what would you say the Mm. best way is to address it in the first place? Um, in your workplace and particularly if resigning 
or leaving a job mm. isn't isn't safe or an option for you mm. what's the best way to bring it up you know say outside of just talking to someone from hr how would you approach that welcome to the end of part 1 this episode is a two part episode head over to our feed to listen to part 2 Thank <laughs> you.